Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Anyways, we're in verse 28-29. So uh, Christ has been before Annas, now he's before Caiaphas, now He's being taken over to Pilate. Where else is he? Do we know that he went to Herod? Herod. We know that from a. That's over in Luke. That's in another one. So I mean, Christ has been to all of these guys. And uh, Pilate went out to them and said, "What accusation do you bring against this man?" They bring him to Pilate in the morning. And Pilate, of course, since they can't go into his house, Pilate comes out to them. And uh, they said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Did the Jews like Pilate? No. Nope. They hated him. And what they're basically saying, look, if we're going to bother you with this, it's because this guy is really, 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 really a bad guy, and that's why we're bothering you. And if he, if he weren't an evildoer, we wouldn't be bringing him here. He's trying to, they're trying to play that card on Pilate, you know, sort of trying to get him to do what they want him to do. Then Pilate said to him, you take him and judge him according to your law. Don't bother me. Now, what does this, what does this intimate about Rome's view of Christ? He was not an insurrectionist, right? Because what did Rome do to insurrectionists? They crucified him, right? And in fact, you know, there, there were stories going back. You remember Thutis and Judas and... Some of the other guys mentioned they, they had they had false messiahs coming out their ears in those days. And Rome was constantly dealing with these guys. And if Rome had any inkling that Christ was an insurrectionist, he wouldn't have gotten this far. And the fact that Pilate really blew these guys off almost, saying, go away, judge them according to your law, meant that as far as Pilate was concerned, this was not an insurrectionist. We're not dealing with someone here who is causing insurrection. And, you know, especially since he went to Herod, right? What would Herod have done if Christ was an insurrectionist? He would have killed him as well, right? In fact, Herod and Pilate were not seeing eye to eye, and after this they became good friends. But the whole point here is, as far as Herod was concerned, Christ was not a threat. Not a threat to Rome, not a threat to... The stability of the peace, telling the Jews, go away and you judge him according to your own law. Do you think Pilate would have had any uh, information about Jesus before this? Point oh, he probably knew some things about him, but as, as far as he was concerned, Christ was just one of the, the religious teachers. And, and, and there, the difference between Christ and the Pharisees and them was a theological matter of Jewish mumbo jumbo, as far as he was concerned. He could have cared less. Christ was not breaking the law. He was certainly not causing an insurrection. He was certainly not trying to foment a rebellion against Rome. And how did the Jews answer him? Well, it said it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So what's their hint? We're bringing him here to, for you to kill him. And why did they do that? They weren't allowed to. Yeah, they were not. It was illegal for them. The one thing that Rome did... Um, 
when they conquered a nation, is all capital punishment had to go through Rome. You were not allowed to put anybody to death as a, as a state. If you wanted, you all, all executions were to be carried out by Rome. And the Jews had one exception. In fact, the, the, only, the only group of people that had any exception, all the Roman Empire, were the Jews. And guess what that exception was? No? Stoning was illegal. It was illegal. You were not allowed to stone. What was the one exception, do you think? They actually dug up the bronze plate. Had to do with the temple. Or somebody would violate the temple. If a Gentile went into the temple, the Jews could kill him on the spot. And that was a legal thing to do. That was the only exception. But the Jews were not allowed to kill. No one was allowed to execute criminals. So we're in, 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 right, out the, right at the get-go, what are the religious leaders telling Pilate? We want this guy dead. All right. And then verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. What, did, what death did Christ prophesy he would die at? He'd be lifted up. And that was a euphemism for crucifixion. And uh, why was that important? Well, how would the Jews have executed him? Stoning. Were the, in, in those days, there was basically, you know, in, in that time, there were pretty much three ways that they would kill you. Stoning, which was a Jewish thing. Um, beheading, which if you were a Roman citizen, you would be beheaded or crucifixion. That was it. And by turning him over to Rome, of course, it would be done by crucifixion because Christ was not a Roman citizen. Therefore, it would have been crucifixion. Now, of course, we have the lions over in Rome, but I'm not talking about over in Rome. I'm talking about here. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? What's Pilate trying to ascertain? Yeah, he caused an insurrection. And now, when we're all done with this, what do we conclude? No. Well, he's the king of the Jews, but he's not an insurrectionist. No, they didn't behead him. Who beheaded John the Baptist? Herod. Herod. Who was Herod? He was the governor. Yeah, he was a Roman official. Rome had Rome had had given him the title king, and he was allowed to do that. All right. So he was he was legal, but the whole point here is that Pilate is trying to ascertain: Is this guy causing a rebellion? And in the end, what was his conclusion? No, he's not causing an insurrection, which is a punishable offense by death. Rather, he's just stepping on their little religious points, and they don't like it. He saw it as a religious issue. He didn't see it as rebellion. Because that's what he asked him. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, if Christ had said, sure I am, 
we're going to take over it. Now you've got a problem. Now, now you've got an insurrectionist on your hand. And by the way, just so you understand, Pilate was very much aware of these guys because he had to deal with them all of the time. You know, you would, if you had newspapers back in those days, the front page would have been, you know, the five crucifixions of the week with a photo of the five insurrectionists. I mean, they, that's, that's how it was. He had these things constantly. He knew what was going on and he's questioning Christ to ascertain whether he was an insurrectionist or not. And Jesus answered and said, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Where did you get your information? Now, why is he asking him this? Not if he has any proof, necessarily, but he's making a point by asking a question. And the point he's making is, yeah, no, the, the, the point he's making with Pilate is, the reason you're asking me this is not because I've been running around trying to cause a rebellion that you've, you've sniffed out. But rather, it's because they told you that. Christ is trying to. Christ is almost making the point to Pilate by asking him this question. Pilate, you're asking me this question because that's what they told you about me. It's not because that's what I have been preaching, or I have been teaching, or I have been trying to gather a group around me to try and. Um, start a rebellion against the Roman authority, it's because they said I said that. And the point I think is made because Pilate does not see anything in this man that was... Now look, Pilate didn't need to have a lot of reasons to kill a Jew. You understand, he was a bad guy. But at least Pilate had a sense of justice here. There was nothing he could lay his finger on in Christ that would cause him to think of him as an insurrectionist or a, or a leader of a rebellion. And Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? What does that tell you? He, he, he understands that it's something between the Jews. And, so and what is Pilate saying? By asking him what Christ has done, what's he saying? Yeah, in other words, look, you know, Pilate's not a stupid person. And if Christ done anything worthy of the Roman attention, you can bet your sweet bippy, <laughs> I haven't heard that in a long time, <laughs> that he would have known that. Yeah. Known about him if he was causing you bet. And there are Romans all over the city. I mean, this is Passover. They're on high alert. You know, they're at you know orange or whatever it is level now. Like our, you know, what was it? Orange now. Orange is the second highest, and there's red and yellow, and I don't know what it is. But they're at DefCon three. You know, they're waiting for because this was a this was a very volatile time. A lot of Jews in there. There's a lot of Romans presence. Had Christ done anything to make him go on their radar as an insurrectionist, Pilate would have been the first to know. And there's no indication anywhere in this passage that Pilate had any notion of that. And it shows that Pilate considered whatever this thing that Christ had done to be some 
idiosyncratic thing of their Jewish law had nothing to do with Rome. Why is Rome even involved in this? And Jesus answered and told him and answered him right. My kingdom is not of this world. So is he saying he's a king? Yes. But not of this world. I am a king, but I'm not a king of this world. In other words, I am no threat to you because if I if my kingdom were of this world, my servants, my disciples would fight, but they're not fighting. Where's my army? I have no army. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight, my disciples would fight to keep me from being delivered to the Jews. Why? There's no army. There's no rebellion. There's no threat to Rome here. And Pilate said, well, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my words. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no fault in him at all. What was Pilate's judicial conclusion? The worst thing he is is a nut job, but he's not guilty of a rebellion. He's not. And, and you got to understand, folks, again, had Pilate had any, if he had the slightest iota indication that Christ was an insurrectionist, he would not be having this conversation. Romans were paranoid about insurrections and rebellions. They were paranoid about it. And they dealt swiftly and harshly with any kind of rebellion. He was. It wasn't the insurrection. The Jews were a problem. Rome knew that. Right. So you had two kinds of provinces. You had the senatorial province and you had the imperial provinces. The senatorial provinces were provinces that were controlled by the Roman Senate. All right. The imperial provinces were the ones out on the, the frontier ones where the emperor was over them. He controlled them. And they were usually the ones that had the most trouble and the most rebellions and things like that. Well, guess what is what Syria was? It was an imperial province, which meant Caesar was over it. And what happened in an imperial province is that Caesar would appoint the governor. In the senatorial provinces, the Senate would appoint the governors. In the imperial provinces, the Caesar would appoint them. And a Caesar had appointed Pilate to be the governor of Palestine. And uh, Pilate has done a few boo-boos when he came in. Number one, he came in with the Roman standard. What was on the Roman standard? An eagle. And immediately he had a, he had an, a riot because of the supposed idolatry. That caused a problem. Um, he uh, also killed 3,000 Jews, remember? Remember when Christ was talking about uh, that tower that fell on these guys? Were they worse than the others? And and what about those guys that Pilate mingled their their blood with their sacrifices and slaughtered the, them? And I mean, he, he was he was on strike three here. He was he was very very much almost losing his job. I mean, he's hanging on by a thread. And he was actually recalled to Rome by the emperor for consultation. Because what Rome did is Rome says, look, don't do anything that would cause a rebellion. Don't be insensitive to the people. You rule them and make sure they behave, but you got you don't be insensitive to them. 
and, and cause a rebellion on your part. And he had done these things. Another thing he had done is he had taken money, if I remember correctly, he had taken money out of the temple treasury to build an aqueduct. And that got the Jews all upset that he would rob their temple. Well, that was common practice in those days. And he built an aqueduct for the people to drink water in. But they didn't like that. So the, the Jews hated this guy. I mean, they just really hated him. But what Pilate is doing here is he, this, you got to understand, you know, when, when you look at this passage, Pilate, who is the number one, now he's the number two paranoid person in Palestine. Number one is Herod. He's the number two paranoid person. But neither Herod nor Pilate saw Christ as a threat to their kingdom. This was not a political insurrection gone bad. So when somebody comes along and they try to tell you that Christ was, you know, this sort of innocent guy that got caught up into this rebellion against Rome and Rome killed him because of that, that's baloney. That's not why it happened. What was it? It was an issue between Christ and the high priest, the Jews. And so Pilate says, I don't find any fault with him. I'm acquitting him. I'm letting him go. But I have a custom, verse 39, that I should release someone to you at the Passover. It's sort of a custom, sort of like a pardon. You get, a, you get to pardon one bad guy at the, at the Passover. Do you want Christ or Barabbas? Now, this is what he did. He picked the worst rotten apple that he had. He picked the baddest bad guy there was. But if Christ is innocent, how can he even be included in the deal? He's trying... He's trying to weasel out. It's a political maneuvering. Uh, man, you know, if I release if I release a serial killer, Charles Manson, instead of this person, you know, they'll probably let me. They'll they'll take Jesus. They don't want Charles Manson loose. And guess what happens? Give us Charles Manson. Give us the bad guy. Give us Barabbas. And also, doesn't it relieve him of responsibility if they demand the real bad guy? No. Well, I'm saying in his own mind. Yeah, in his own mind, maybe. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to weasel. He says, I don't find any fault with him, but they still want him to kill him. So he says, okay, I'll tell you what. I get the, I, I can release one person. This year, it's Christ or Hitler. Which one do you want? And, and and really, but when it says Barabbas was a robber, what a robber was there? He would he would kill people on the, and steal their money. That's what he was. He was he was the worst. Of the worst. He was a brigand. He he was in fact his cross was number three on Golgotha. He was probably the one that's going to be crucified, and Christ takes his place. Yeah, he was the one. And he was. He was the rebellious one. And and Pilate picked the again, Christ or Pilate picked the absolute worst, most hated criminal he had. Barabbas was not a nice guy, he was not loved by the people. That's funny, I uh, remember a movie that came out and Anthony Quinn played Barabbas. And he like lived on and on and on until he came to faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. Christ allowed him to die. Yeah. That was a really good movie. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. 
So then, we'll see as far how far we get. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, this was bad news. I mean, if, if you've ever seen the, the um, Passion, that depicts it. I mean, basically, when you were done being scourged, you had no skin on your back. And in some cases, it was possible for even your internal organs to be showing. It was that brutal. Many people died. Now, why is he doing it? Why is, well, number one, if you're going to be crucified, you were scourged. That was part of the deal. That was, you know, preparation for crucifixion, you were scourged. But what else was Pilate probably trying to do? When they saw Christ being bloodied and near death, they would have pity and let him go. And he could still take care of Barabbas. Not only that, they put a crown of twisted thorns on its head, mocking his, mocking the Jews' statement that he was king of the Jews. Now these are not, when you think of thorns here, you think of um, rose bushes. These are Judean thorns. They're about an inch long. Have that jammed down on your head. They put them out of a purple robe. Which purple a sign of? Royalty. So they, they scourge the guy. He's, he's, he's been scourged. He can't hardly stand up. They, he's got blood streaming down his face from this crown of thorns. Then they put a purple robe on him. And they all said, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. They mocked him. And he let them do it. When these soldiers stand before God in the great white throne, there's no excuse on their part. God gave them all the rope. And what did Pilate do? Well, he went out again and said to him, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. What's he trying to get them to do? To have pity. I see the humanity there. You really want this guy killed and Barabbas released? And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him. <clears throat> Pilate said to him, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. You do it. You want to crucify him, you do it yourself. I don't find any fault with him. Now we know from other Gospels that what happened with Pilate's wife. She had a dream. Don't have anything to do with this man. The Jews answered and said, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. Why was he more afraid? He knew that this man was a miracle worker, and there was something 
distinct about him. And the Romans were also very superstitious. And when they said, well, he claimed to be a god, Pilate says, oh man, I just, I just had this guy scourged. If he's really a god, that's not a very good thing. You know, Alan, too, when I look at this part of the story, you know, Jesus was no ordinary man. And, you know, when they took him to scourge him, the whole part of that was to destroy every ounce of dignity that he had left. The whole point of the crucifixion was to destroy. It was actually a punishment to the offender, but it was also a lesson to anybody watching that if you ever defied Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. And so when the soldiers got a hold of him, it was all part of the plan to break him down emotionally and physically in that scourging. So as they're beating him, they're, they're doing everything they can to beat the life and to get him to scream and beg for mercy. The Bible said that he went as a lamp to the slaughter, mm -hmm. and he opened not his mouth. He took that beating like no man ever took a beating before. No one ever experienced that. Mm -mm. And those soldiers there that inflicted that beating upon him and did all that to him, trying to get him to scream for mercy, trying to break his spirit, and they did not do it. There was something about that man when he stood there with that crown of thorns and that purple robe that did declare, this is the Son of God. Well, you know that because one of the centurions around the cross said what? Surely this was the Son of God. I think he's redeemed. And the thing to understand, folks, is Christ did that for us. He didn't have to do it. He allowed himself to be humiliated. And as it says in Philippians chapter 2, not only did he become a servant, but he took upon himself the form, the external form of a servant. And it says there he even submitted to the most degrading death imaginable. And he did it for us. And the interesting thing you see here is you see the crowd yelling, the Pharisees and the chief priests hollering, and Pilate and the Roman soldiers, and Christ is standing there in 100% control of the entire situation. And these men who are doing these things for their own selfish purposes are nevertheless fulfilling the plan of God. That's God's sovereignty at work, folks. And what does that mean? God even uses the rebellion of men to accomplish his eternal purposes. Not only that, God uses the rebellion of Satan to accomplish his eternal purposes. Right. <clears throat> Who was behind this crowd? Satan was. Yep. Satan was doing everything he can to see this Christ nailed on a cross. And it was all said and done. Christ said, thanks. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. 
sort of a bummer. I said, often said, sort of a bummer being Satan. No matter what you do, God's a move ahead of you. I think you've got him now. You've got him backed in a corner. And God says, you've done exactly, thanks. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. And, yeah, and Christ is orchestrating all of these events. And this was determined from eternity path. Pilate was put in this position with his background, with all the things that happened, to fulfill God's eternal purpose and plan, along with all these others. Well, Pilate hears he's the son of God. He goes and asks Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus doesn't answer him. Why not? You know, it's bad when God speaks to you in judgment. It's even worse when he quits talking. There's pilots made up his mind. What's Christ going to tell him? Pilate has declared him innocent three times. Why doesn't he let him go? Yeah. And Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater Sin. Pilate, you don't have any power over me unless God gave you that power. Schaefer translation, Pilate, you're nothing. To deliver him to Pilate. There's maliciousness to it. Pilate's just an idiot. And from then on, Pilate sought to release Jim. Pilate tried everything he could, every political maneuver, every trick in the book to release Christ, but actually releasing him. Because the Jews said, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. We will besmirch you. If you let this guy go, we're going to let Caesar know that you let someone who claimed to be a king loose. And implied in that is what? Game over for Pilate. Pilate was threatened with political death if he had allowed Christ to go. He didn't like the Jews. The Jews didn't like him. You see how God is orchestrating all of the events, all of the emotions, all of the, all of the hatred, all of the, all of that is focused to produce God's intended plan. That's providence, folks. So you got these guys running amok, Achmanajab running amok over in Iran. Don't worry about Achmanajab. Don't worry about the Palestinians. Don't worry about Osama bin Laden. God says the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're like dust on the scales. 
you don't wipe the dust off the scale when you get your meat um, weighed at the at the butcher shop because the dust on the scale is not going to make one bit of difference on how much meat you're going to get. You're, it's irrelevant. God said the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Don't don't. God is in. You see the sovereignty of God at play. And Pilate wants to release Jesus, but Pilate is over a barrel politically. And in the end, Pilate sells his soul to save his political future. And the Jews threaten him, saying, if you don't crucify him, we're going to tell Caesar that you allowed a so-called king to go free. And that in Rome is called a career-limiting move. Because if there's anything Pilate was charged to do by Caesar, it's to kill anyone that claimed to be a king. That was the number one job priority that he had. Verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out, set down the judgment seat in a place that's called the pavement in the Hebrew Gabbatha. Now is the preparation day of the Passover. What's the preparation day? Right. Preparing for the sacrifice. And about the sixth hour, um, the sixth hour is um, six in the morning. This would be the Roman time. Of yeah, this Roman time. John here is reckoning, it says here, if you have your, an authorized MacArthur Study Bible, it says it, it's reckoning, because it's from a Roman context. Pilate, Roman context, so it would be the Roman. And when did the Romans start counting the hours? And when did the Jews start counting the hours? Right. Six in the morning. Yeah. To the Jews, the sixth hour was noon. To the Romans, the twelfth hour was noon. Um, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Did they? They hated the Romans. They were hypocritical as the day was long. But they hated Christ so much, they wanted him dead at all costs. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified then they took Jesus and led him away. He didn't deliver him to the Jews. The Romans were the ones that would kill Christ. They would crucify him. And on another gospel, we were told that he took a bowl of water and symbolically washed his hands of the blood. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Other Gospels have more detail. It talks about his being stumbled and having Simon Cyrene carry his cross beam. Part of the humiliation of a crucified person was they had to carry their own instrument of death, the cross beam. And... Um, Christ was so weakened from his scourging, he couldn't do it. So he impressed Cyrene, Simon Cyrene to carry it. 
and Christ was taken out and he would be nailed on a cross. You know, these movies where he's tied up there with ropes, forget the ropes, there was no rope business. And they actually dug up skeletons. They've dug up crucified skeletons. I don't know if he knew this. They've actually dug up crucified skeletons. Um, and the way they were crucified is they would put a nail through their wrist between the two wrist bones. What is that? The ulna and the radius. And it would not put it through here because it would tear through the skin. All right. But if you put it through here, basically, it wouldn't tear through. And they put the feet, they put, they put one foot on top of another and nailed the nail down through the foot to hold the two feet on top of one another. And um, you would hang there until you suffocated. Death, crucifixion was death by suffocation. You were hung in a position where you had to push yourself up to breathe. And after a while, you became so weak, you could no longer push yourself up and you basically suffocated. I remember reading uh, in, the same, in Passion of Christ where it looks and said he actually used his hand, I guess, to his hand, knocking that nail and yeah. had a tremendous impact. You know, when he did that, you know, the fact that he was using that. I mean, it's just, you know, you could just feel that when you saw that nail. Um, I can't remember whether they nailed it through the palm or through the wrist. Yeah, that's a Catholic tradition, but it's through it's through the wrist, really, is is where they would they found because they were able to they actually the way they knew that is because they could examine the bones and they saw how the bones were worn away from rubbing against the nail that was in them. They could that's how they could tell that. Somewhere where the the youngsters get stainless steel nails mm. through the hands. Mm. South America somewhere. Uh, yeah. yeah. They do a reenactment yeah. every year. Yeah. 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 Somebody should tell them it's really the wrist. Well, all I'm saying is the skeleton they dug up had the the the, the radius and ulna were worn where the nail had gone through, and as they were you know hanging on the cross and going up and down, it wore into the bone. They could tell that it was someone who had been crucified. Um, and a pilot wrote a title and put it on the cross saying, Jesus Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, to get this full title, you have to look at all four of the Gospels. Because each Gospel only has a portion of the particular inscription over it. Um, but Pilate put this uh, little title up there. And, it's, and, and this is interesting. One of the things they would do when they when they crucified the criminals, they would write what his crime was. They would actually write on a piece of parchment, this was the crime that this person was being crucified for. And what did Christ have hanging around him, so to speak? No crime, but this was what they This is the king of the Jews. Rome is mocking Jews, saying, We're crucifying your king. Mm. And that's really, and it really got the Pharisees all bent out of shape, right? Because the Pharisees said, no, he's not our king. He says he's our king. And Pilate says, buzz off what I've written, I've written. That's sort of the Schaefer translation. It's kind of, it's Go away. Stab at them. 
Yeah, he, he got snookered into this. He was railroaded into this, and he's not going to change the conscription. He said, what I put up there, I put up there. Go away. You got your crucifixion. Now leave me. And, of course, if we know that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. But he wasn't the king they wanted, was he? They wanted the conqueror. They wanted the political ruler. They didn't want somebody talking about repentance and love and faith and all that mushy stuff. And yet someday they are going to recognize, part of Israel is going to recognize what they did, aren't they? Zechariah 13, 14, they'll look on him whom they have pierced. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Now it's the three languages of the day. Anybody that could have read it, anybody that could read, would have read, read one of those languages. And the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, What I have written, I have written. Go away. What does this tell you about the religious leaders? They 100% totally, completely rejected Christ as their king. And guess what? They got their wish. Because where are they now? In Hades. You didn't want Christ to rule over you? Fine. You don't get him. And what's interesting is this was in spite of all of the proof that Christ gave them. All the miracles, all of the signs, all of the wonders. And this was not Christ being accidentally put on a cross. It was not a victim of the circumstances. This was God's plan. It was ordained, Peter says, before the foundation of the world. Before anything existed, God knew this would happen. This was the day redemption was offered or made possible to all of mankind. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart. Um, yeah. Um, this was common practice in those days. Um, part of your wage as a, an executioner was you got the clothes of the executed criminal. This was common in England. It's interesting. They got the, old, the proceedings of the Old Bailey. The, the, it's interesting. You ought to read some of these things. Um, on, on the Internet, the Old Bailey, which is the, uh, the court in England, um, where, where it's one of the major courts. And uh, it's got the proceedings, and they, they got all the criminals that come in there that talk about the crimes that they commit and the judgment of the court and all of this kind of stuff. It's pretty interesting to read. Um, but in those days, if you were the executioner, part of your wage was that when you executed a criminal, you got their clothes, and you could sell them and make, you know get some money from them. That was part of your wage, and that's what happened here. The executioners, um, the people, the soldiers who crucified Christ, they got the executed criminals' clothes. So they parted them. They divided them up between themselves. They divvied them up. 
and the tunic was without seam woven from top in one piece. Uh, they had one piece left over, so what did they do? They uh, cast lots. They gambled for it. That the scripture might be fulfilled, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. The soldiers didn't know they were fulfilling scripture, did they? Stop and think about it. How'd you like to have been one of those soldiers gambling for the tunic of the creator of the universe while he was hanging there dying? I think it'd be a sad thing to say you got the cloak, but you didn't get the creator. Can you imagine standing before God in the final judgment and seeing the one that you gambled for his tunic and you're so worried about the tunic you missed the significance of what he was doing you talk about the evil of man you talk about the grace of God I mean you know if I was God I would just erase the universe and start it over again almost right could have done that. He didn't. This shows the grace of God extended even to those who are crucifying him. And could Christ have stepped down from the cross? Well, yeah, sure he could have. He could have called 10,000 angels, right? How many angels would have taken to get him off the cross? One. One. 10,000 is a little bit of an overkill. <laughs> One angel destroyed 186,000 Assyrians. I think 10,000 angels could have done in the Roman Empire without a whole lot of trouble. But he did it because that's the cup that God the Father had told him to drink. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Four women around the cross, right? His mother, his mother's sister, Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Yeah, right. Now, if you do a little bit of analysis between the other gospel accounts, you you identify who his mother's sister was. It was Salome? Who was Salome? Yeah, and who else was she? And who else was she? Mother. Yep. His mom, his aunt. Another Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. Who's that, John? Standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. What's Christ doing here? Even at the crucifixion, he gives the care of his mother over to John. Why John? Of all of the disciples, who was Christ closest to? John. Is John his cousin? Mm-hmm. Yep. His, well, cousin in... 
step cousin because Christ's father was not. Yeah. 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 I understand that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Christ's father was not Joseph, and he he was born of the Holy Spirit. But yeah, John was his cousin from his mom. Yeah. Right. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, what all things? The prophecies, right? Everything's written down. It was accomplished. That the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. One of the things to understand is that Christ fulfilled every prophecy concerning his first advent. Now somebody will say, well, he just manipulated events to do that, blah, 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 blah. What you need to do is slap him and say, now wait a minute here. Now, he might have been able to manipulate a couple of the things, but after he's dead, <laughs> how did he wind up in a new tomb? That certainly wasn't something he had control over. I mean, there's a lot of things in Christ's crucifixion that a human person would not have had control over. So don't let anybody tell you that. That, Well, you know, Jesus just manipulated events to make himself look like the Messiah. And too late, he got wound up into a bad thing and was killed. And the poor guy just made a miscalculation. That's some of the drivel you hear from the liberals today. Just ignore that. There's about 33 of them, somebody said. 33 distinct. Now, here's the other thing. If he fulfilled all of the prophecies regarding his first advent, what's going to happen with the second one? And there's a lot more about the second advent than there are about the first one. So Jesus said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. They filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. By his head, he gave up his spirit. What was finished? Now, this it is finished was not a, it is finished in the terms of defeat, but what? Victory. What's finished? Yeah. Now, what has gone on during this time? We've had the three hours of darkness, right? And all of that. By the way, when was Jesus put on the cross? No. He was let out the sixth hour. When was he put on the cross? Which would have been nine. When did the darkness fall? Twelve noon, sixth hour. When did he die? Ninth hour. And what was happening at the ninth hour down at the temple? The Passover lamb was being slaughtered at that very time. So he was on the cross from the third of the ninth hour? From nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. And his blood, he died at the exact moment that that priest was taking the blood into the holy place and sprinkling it on the Mercy. Now, if if the people who were supposed to be doing it were doing it, who was the one doing it? Who's the one sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat at the exact moment that Christ died? Caiaphas. Caiaphas. He was the high priest that year. 
And we know from Matthew what happened to the veil. Now that would freak you out because as a Jew, what were you told? You go behind that veil unworldly, what happens? You get dragged out by your foot. You didn't do that. That would be terrifying. And yet God was saying the way is now open. The veil has been rent. See, the, 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 the picture of the Old Testament, if you boil the Old Testament down to, a, to almost a statement, the Old Testament law, God is saying, I am holy, you're not, stay away from me. I'm holy, you're not, stay away. And the only way I will tolerate you in my presence is if you do this. And if you, if you don't do this, you die. I mean, the entire Old Testament is a picture of what? God's isolation from mankind, right? In the, in the temp tabernacle, you had the Holy of Holies separated from the holy place by a curtain that no one could go into but once a year with the blood to sprinkle on the altar. That was it. And God is saying, if you look at me, you're going to die. And when I'm on the mountain, if you touch it, you die. And when Isaiah gets a picture of heaven, what does he see flying around the throne? Cherubim saying, holy, holy, holy. You can't get close to God. The point of the Old Testament is you can't get close to God because of your sin. God has... And, and from the, from the picture of God putting the flaming swords in the garden to keep them from going back in there, all the way through the Old Testament, God is saying, I'm holy, you're not, stay away. You're, I am too holy for you to come near me. If you come near me, you're dead. If you see me, you're dead. And the only way you get near me is if you gotta, you gotta bring a blood sacrifice, and this is how you do it, and if you do it wrong, you're dead. And Aaron's son says, ah, you know, he's really not, he really doesn't mean that. And God says, yes, I do, and they, they died of fire, they were burned alive. Yeah, they thought they'd do it on their own. God says, no, you don't, you don't come to me. And here's the whole point, other point of the Old Testament, you don't come to God on your terms, you come to God on His terms. And that's the heresy of the day. The people today say, well, you know, I'll just sort of do this and God will like me okay. No, no, no. <laughs> you don't come to God on your terms. You come to God on his terms. He said, here's how you approach me. Here's how you come. If you don't come this way, you're dead. And that was drilled into the Jews. And, and they were told, you don't, you don't go into that holy place without the blood only once a year after making a sacrifice. And while Caiaphas is there, all of a sudden that veil is ripped in two. And the way is open. Because what happens in the New Testament? The price has been paid. You have access to God, not because you're a wonderful person, but because Christ has paved the way. Roman or Hebrews uses the imagery that Christ is our anchor within the veil. That's an interesting concept. The way that works is in the old is in those days, um, if you were a large ship coming into harbor, of course you didn't have steam engines and all that kind of stuff. 
you would send a rowboat, they would put the boat anchor in a rowboat, row the rowboat into the harbor, and then pull the boat into the harbor. Christ is our anchor that brings us right within the veil. The safety, the presence of God. And notice what it says here, Christ did not, was not crucified and did not die at the hands of the Romans. He gave up his spirit. Who is in charge? Christ gave up his life at the exact moment it was time to give up his life. He was in charge of his death. And remember, that's what he says. No man takes my life from it. I lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. Even in his death, he was sovereign. This is not a victim. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Sabbath was a high day, not only in that it was a Sabbath, but it was the Passover Sabbath. The Jews, in order to not violate their little laws, wanted what? Yeah. Now, if you're not dead yet, what do you have to do? Break your legs so you could not raise yourself up. You'd suffocate very quickly. So they, Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with Christ. When it came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead and did not break his legs. And again, that the scripture might be filled what? They shall not break any of his bones. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen us, he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Who's that? John. John says, I was there, I saw it. Now, one of the major heresies that makes its way around is, well, you know, Jesus wasn't really dead, he just sort of like passed out. Call the swoon theory. Which if anybody, if they really understand how the Romans did their business, would understand how stupid that was. See, if you're a Roman soldier in charge of an execution, what did you make sure of? They were dead. Because if they weren't dead, what happened? You took their place. These Roman, Roman these guys, these, are, these were professional killers, executioners. If they said you were dead, you were dead. They didn't make mistakes. There's no coming back out of there's no swooning here. I'm sure they've done it many times and didn't bother them to do it. Oh, they knew exactly what they were doing. Jesus is already dead. There's no need to break the legs, he's already dead. It makes a difference when it's more than a pink slip that you mess up. Oh yeah, it's not it's not it's not a fine, it's your death. See, as a Roman soldier, if you were in charge of a prisoner to guard that prisoner, if that prisoner escaped, you took that prisoner's place. And whatever punishment that prisoner would get, you would get. So you made sure that if you were a soldier, you made absolutely certain that whatever you were supposed to do, you did. And not only did they notice he was dead, but what did they do? They thrust a spear into his side and out came a mixture of blood and water, and there's all medical, you can read all the medical literature on, you know, how that, the separation of the blood from the serum and death. Christ was dead, dead. He was not swooning, he was not 
out like a light. He was dead. And John says, you know, I was there. I know it's true because I saw it. And these things were fulfilled. Were done that scripture might fulfill. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The whole idea there is that Christ is fulfilling scripture even after he's dead. Now, you know, some person might be able to manipulate a few prophecies prior to death. But now that you're dead, how can you make sure your bones aren't broken? And how do you make sure that somebody's going to pierce you in the side? I mean, these are events over which a dead person has no control. But the God of the universe does. It's all on plan. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came back and took the body of Jesus. Now, what usually would happen to the bodies of criminals? They're thrown in the dump, like a dog or a dead animal. They weren't buried, they were thrown in the garbage heap. But Joseph asked Pilate if he could have the body. And also Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then he took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the customs of the Jews is to bury. What they would do, they would wrap the body, put some spices in, wrap the body, more spices, you know, to help with the decay process, to keep the smell down. And they bound you tight. Now, I understand this Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Christ and uh, you know, being willing to do this. And I don't know, I guess for Nicodemus, I, I have to believe that for him to do this and be a part of this, that he would be a disciple. He was. Yeah. He was super solid. Yeah. Both of them were. And actually, those spices that he brought—that was very costly. He actually yeah. Got a buried. Christ, yeah. I mean, I mean, the average criminal would not be buried with spices and bound and put in a tomb. I mean, he would be tossed out in the garbage. And again, God, God is in charge of this whole thing. Now, why is the burial of Christ an important component? First of all, it's in contrast to his resurrection. Yeah, but what is the burial? And it's also part of the prophecy. And it's also what? Well, he was dead dead. He was dead. Yeah, he, was dead. he was dead dead. He did not pass out and revive six hours later. He was bound. And the idea of, you got to understand how they wrapped it. They wrapped you tight. You know, you would suffocate. You know, if you were alive, by the time they got done wrapping you, you were dead. Because you would suffocate. You know, you have this this... This stuff wrapped in you, and then they would wrap this stuff really tightly around you so you couldn't move or breathe. You know, they could pick you up and think of the mummy, you know. Think of a body cast, you know, a head-to-toe body cast. I mean, you you were not able to move, and they took him here. Yeah. I'm wondering, if that's the case, then how was Lazarus able to walk out? I mean, he would have been buried by somebody. He might not have been buried like... he was, He was certainly wrapped up, but not probably to the extent Christ was. And you could also say Christ loosened. Because what did Christ say? Loosen the clothes. So he was wrapped up tight. But the point is, if you were alive, 
you can be suffocated with this. And this was not, you know, just put a little couple of little strips around you and pepper some spices on you. I mean, you were wrapped pretty tightly. And he took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen and spices. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Ooh, he shall make his grave with the rich. Joseph, by the way, I understand, um, only rich people had tombs like this. Only wealthy people had tombs like this. The average person didn't have this. But Christ was laid in a tomb, and it says, um, so they, there they laid Jesus because the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. They had to hurry up and get him off the cross, quickly get him into the tomb. So they did that. It was close by, and it was a tomb that had never been used. And I like the way S.M. Lockridge says, well, it's kind of bothersome that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And his answer was, well, he wasn't going to stay there, so he might as well borrow one. But what you see in this, we're, we're, we're pick the last two chapters next week. But what you see here, I hope what you see, throughout this crucifixion, as ugly as it is, what you see is the, is the abject evil of man in contrast with the purity of Christ. And also that God, or, or Christ, and by, by God, was fully in charge of every event. Nothing took him by surprise. And even though these men, evil men, did what evil men do because of their own evil motives, that all funneled into God's eternal purpose. He was in charge. And next week we'll get the resurrection. Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this time. You've granted us. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending your son to die in our place. Thank you, Father, for sending him to die in my place. None of us in here deserve another day. We don't deserve another minute, another second of existence. It's only by your grace we're here, and it's only by your grace you've saved us and redeemed us. Father, I pray that we would not forget the sacrifice that Christ made. And I pray that every time we take of communion, we stop. We try to go back in our own minds and think about the sacrifice that Christ made for us by dying on the cross. From our perspective, that was the worst possible death. And he took upon himself my sin, our sin. Father, will never help us to never get over the wonder of that. Help us to never look at this from a from a disconnected, distant viewpoint. But that our hearts would fill with emotion and an understanding of what you've done when we read it. You didn't have to do it. You didn't have to send your son. He didn't have to die, but he did. And all we can do is say thank you. 
frightened me to death. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.